Well, uh, after that bummer of a lesson, I thought we'd do something cheerful. <laughs> I, uh, I knew there was a reason why I wanted him to go first tonight. I just uh, figured something uh, something had to end a little better than that. If I went on a, uh, a uh, uh, complaining fast, I'd starve to death. You know, what can I do? <laughs> <laughs> My wife's back there going, "Amen." You know? <laughs> uh, no, that was uh, that's always helpful. <laughs> you know, it's like whack. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I, I, I certainly echo what uh, what Phyllis said about the wonderful time that we have had. Always enjoy seeing you so much. Uh, it's very special to me to be able to be here. Uh, whether or not I was preaching, but it's just very special to always connect with you. Uh, to think about this church uh, 22 years ago uh, when Brent came and the kindness and the encouragement that you gave him in those early years, and I know that you are being paid back in many, many beautiful blessings that you now get from him and April, and you continue to uh, be such a, a great encouragement. It it it's, um, means a lot to me, obviously, as a father, uh, to see my children uh, succeed and to especially succeed in God's kingdom. That's what's uh, always important and been very blessed. I, I was telling Phil earlier today, uh, we, we have uh, four sons and we have four daughters-in-law and I could not have hand-picked better women. Uh, and that's the greatest blessing you could have ever as a parent is to not just have good children, but to have the ones that they marry uh, be, be just absolutely fantastic. Teresa always told the kids, please marry up. You're not that good. <laughs> And indeed, Brent married up, and we, the Schmidt family uh, has been uh, fantastic. Uh, I, I think uh, they took the place of what I could not have done as as uh, Brent and April got married, and it, it's uh, just I'm so thankful for them. I, I can't even can't even explain. Uh, so thank you for being who you are, and uh, and for the how you provided for us this week and took care of us and getting able to eat with many of you was, uh, was so very, very special. I want to bring this uh, to a conclusion on something that is not a, a one text in the book of First Peter, but it is something that, first, that Peter talks about throughout the text uh, from beginning to end. And I'd like to call your attention to it because it's so very uh, encouraging. And uh, seeing this, I think, is, is, is really going to, I hope, lift your spirits and uh, help you see the eternal ever better and to see your place in the, this physical world. You will notice in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse, verses 2 and 3, uh, Peter says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of, t- will of God, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. 
You notice this word time, and it is really significant. And as I studied and, and did lessons on First Peter in the past number of months this year, I began to notice that. In fact, one of the younger men that, that I had been training pointed it out to me, and I followed up on that and thought it was just really fascinating how many times Peter talks about time, time both now and throughout eternity and the contrast that Peter makes with that. So take, let's take a quick moment here to notice two categories. First, the shortness of time here is, is one of the things that you see highlighted throughout the text. Just take a quick journey with me, if you will, in chapter 1 and verse 1, as we have mentioned many times, to those who are elect exiles. Well, here you are an exile, yes, in a foreign country, so to speak. And you go over to verse 17 of chapter 1, and he says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The very under the, the very thought of being an exile that there is only a period of time in which you will experience this period of being an exile. In chapter 1 and verse 6, he spoke about the they're grieved by various trials, but he says now for a little while. And so he indicates the time period that you're going to suffer. Again, the shortness of it is his emphasis. In 2 verse 11, uh, look there and you will see, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So what is a sojourner? Well, it's a brief period of time in which you are going to be in this condition. It's not forever. You're not a sojourner uh, in in a lengthy period of time, but a short period of time. In chapter 1 and verse 20, we mentioned this last night, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times. For the sake of you. So again, the period is just the last times. This is not forever that we are living in right now. And then you see this contrast in which he talks about an eternal hope in chapter 1 and verse 23. You've been born again, not a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Verse 25, but the word of God, word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is good news is preached to you. You've been born again by a word that, that is forever, that causes you to live and abide forever. In chapter 2, in verse 5, you are like living stones built up in a spiritual house. In verse 6, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Here is the picture then of you are now a living stone in a temple that is forever, that Jesus is the rock foundation stone of it. It's not going to crumble. It's not going to be torn down. Chapter 4 and verse 6, we, we've talked about this a couple of nights ago. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were dead, that though judged in the flesh... The way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The period of time in which you're judged in the flesh is brief. 
But the period of time in which you're living as God has you to live is then forever. In chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. But in chapter 4, verse 11, at the very end, he says, To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And again, the constant contrast between the shortness of time while we're here and the eternal time that comes after that. So you know that. I mean, that's it's a concept that's not new to you, but it was first interesting to me just to see how many times Peter refers to it and how he just lays this out. All right, so making sense of that, by the way, chapter 5, verse 10 as well, after you've suffered a little while, uh, you, you, you will then, the one who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So you see, again, see that, that same picture. Uh, so these contrasting pictures keep coming up over and over again. The beginning of this, and this is where we started in our lessons this week, the beginning of this is born again to a living hope, but notice through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as like Jesus is raised to forever live and forever reign, so he has rebirthed us to give us a living hope that is forever and it's imperishable and it's undefiled and it's unfading and it's kept in heaven. All these eternal words and names are what give us this permanent reversal of the curse. I think of the big picture in the garden, sin, and the curse. And the contrast between Genesis 3 and Genesis 12 is that here are these curses. And then in Genesis 12, God promises the reversal of the curses as he makes the three promises to Abraham. And then Peter here is now emphasizing, though not referencing directly, is emphasizing the eternal reversal of then of these particular curses. So our eternal hope then becomes our motivation. And the brief little while, the little while in the flesh becomes our encouragement to press on and not think so highly or so importantly with the suffering that goes on itself. All right, so there's there's just laying a foundation there. Now here's the challenge that we come to in, in Peter's uh, message here. The words in chapter 4, again, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh... No longer for human passions, passions, desires. No longer for human desires and passions, but for the will of God. Does that sound challenging to you? To live no longer for human desires and passions, but now live for the the will of God. You know, the first thing I thought of with that when I just sat and meditated on it for very long is... What, what are we, let me come back here just a second before we go to that. What is, what is the problem with that statement? What, what might come to your mind no longer living for these human desires, human passions, but living for the word of God? You know what I thought of? Well, wait a minute. What about all the things I wanted to do? 
What, what about all those things I want to do in life? I'm not talking about simple things. What about all these things I want to do? I mean, I got this, I got this bucket list. You know, I, I, I want to drive a Dodge Charger someday. I want to, I want to be able to uh, go on an Alaskan cruise. I want, to, I want to be able to do this or that. I want to ride a motorcycle across country just one more time. That's not going to happen. But uh, just all these, well, what about this? What about this? Every one of us got some things. You know, I, I, I think, what, about, what about those things? Well, obviously, keeping life in balance is not like there's a problem that God has with us having some time of rest and enjoying the labor, the, the goodness of our toil. But it can no longer be that that's what I'm living for. These, these are the, the most wonderful words in Ecclesiastes that should always bring us back to center when it comes to where our desires are. Uh, Solomon said, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. All right, so he says, that's great. He's putting that in the context of Solomon earlier saying in chapter 2, anything my eyes saw and whatever my heart desired, I did not withhold it from me. I did anything I wanted. And when it was all said and done, it was vanity of vanities all was vanity. And so he draws this conclusion. He kind of brings us back out from under the sun living and he draws this conclusion. He says, look, there's just nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and enjoy the good of his labor. Have you eaten and drunk today and enjoyed the good of your labor? Did it, did it have to be steak or whatever your favorite food is? No, it's like, if you have this and you get done with like my, 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 one of my favorite jobs that I ever worked uh, before I preached, and I'd go back to doing it again in a New York minute, was cleaning Disneyland at night. There's nothing like cleaning bathrooms after 60,000 people have used them. It is the absolute best of the best. And you get done, you go, look at that, man. You could lick that. There is no way. It's absolutely flawless. It is something else. You know, and you just get done. I mean, that I was just, I still, I, I still like get Teresa get out of the way. I got to clean the floors because I can't stand it. it. It's that's mine. That's mine. It's all mine. And uh, I, I want, I want to do it. It just gives me just such wonder of being able to clean that. So, if if that's all I did in my life, which would just be heaven for me on earth to just clean every day. And get my uh, whatever paycheck I get from it. And go home and make a bowl of chili beans and put some Fritos in it. And sit down and uh, what, you know, does it get any better than that? It doesn't get any better than that. That's as good as it gets. You see, it really doesn't matter. And we, we're just like, oh man, if I could just do, if I could just do. What did he say here? When you have Sit down and you eat and you drink and you enjoy the good of your labor. I don't care if it's Bill Gates. I don't care if it's Tesla man. I don't care who it is. None of them have anything better than what you just enjoyed. That's that. And so 
the preacher's admonition to us is, quit thinking that somehow you're going to get something better in this life. You're not. This is it. There's nothing better than this. I saw that this is from the hand of God and apart from Him, who can eat and drink and have enjoyment? You see, that's what you you or you have an edge of. On the richest guy who ever lived, who could do whatever he wants, brought us by Marilago here uh, yesterday and was like, ah, cool, I've never, uh, never driven by there. I wouldn't have driven by. I didn't know that, uh, that uh, uh, our uh, former president lived there. I, I, I wouldn't even have, uh, I knew he was there somewhere, but and you're kind of thinking of, like the, I, I told him to pull in the driveway. I'm sure he'd recognize me. <laughs> but uh, uh, th- that'd be a kick. I'd like that. But there's nothing better than this. And you have the hand of God with you. Such a beautiful, beautiful thing. So here's the idea. We no longer live for our desires. We live for the word of God. The will of God. We live for His will. We no longer have to live for our desires because if we live for our desires, the end result is we're trying to find something that is greater than what God has already said we have. You're able to eat and drink and enjoy the good of your labor. So why are you worried about, well, maybe I'll miss out on this and maybe I'd like to do that and maybe this would be so cool and and all that. You, You don't have to worry about that because that is... All there is right now. Now, why should this be easy for us to do? It's not, but why should this be easy for us to do? I I think that the, the key here is, is that we think in the terms of, I only have so much time. I only have so much time to be able to do this. And that is where we have such wrong thinking. You do not and are not running out of time. You're not running out of time. That's what Peter has been telling us all this time. How did Jeremiah live the way Jeremiah did. We were talking about this the other day. And I said, I said, I don't think Jeremiah had one happy day in his whole life. <laughs> Maybe just prior to God calling him. Now, see, when God called him, that was the end of happy days. <laughs> when God said, I want you to be my prophet, and it's going to be so nasty. I don't want you to get married, and everybody's going to hate you, and they're going to throw you in pits, and they're going to beat you up. And it was so bad that by Jeremiah 22, Jeremiah said, he put in his resignation. He wrote God a letter and said, I'm done. This is it. God sat back and waited, and he finally went, I can't stand it. i got to preach to him. And there he goes. But it was never a good day. The worst day of his whole life was toward the end after the Babylonians had come and taken everybody away. That was the worst day of his whole life because the Babylonians take everybody away, and these Poppers are left behind and they come to Jeremiah and say, okay, 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 if we're done, we're sorry, we're sorry. We'll do whatever God wants, wants us to do. You just go ask God and you come back and tell us and we'll do whatever he says. We're, I promise, we promise. Jeremiah, happy, oh, oh, 
This is, I've seen, seen Jeremiah running. God, 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 they're, they're going to they're gonna do it. They're going to do it this time. And God says, okay, okay, you go tell them, stop worshiping all the stars of heaven and all these idols and don't go to Egypt. And Jeremiah goes back, okay, here it is. Don't worship all those stars of heaven. Get rid of all your eyes and don't go to Egypt. And they look at him and said, oh, that's nuts. We're going to keep worshiping all the, all the hosts of heaven and we're going to Egypt. Boom. He never had a good day in his life. How did he do that? How did the Apostle Paul, how did Peter, Andrew, James, and John probably called to be apostles in their 20s and Jesus says, here we go. How did they make it all their life and go right to the death? But weren't they missing out on something? What was missing? Oh, but, you know, I only have so much time here on earth. What they were not missing was they were never running out of time. That is not the key to this. Look at what Peter says in chapter 3 of 2 Peter. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Notice a couple of things here. First off, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. And then he talks about they'll be set on fire and they're going to melt these heavenly bodies as they burn. Read a book a number of years ago. thought just one of the greatest admonitions that I, that, that I ever read just stuck with me all the time. But the, the man said, look, at, in commenting upon this particular verse, he, he said, get one of those, uh, uh, you know, label guns and, and just produce about a hundred labels that all say the same thing, soon to be burnt. Uh, stick it on your car, stick it on the front door of your house, stick it on your TV, stick it on your carpet, stick it on your forehead, stick it everywhere. And every time you look at it and say, oh, man, don't, don't, don't look at it that way. Soon to be burned. Look at the majesty of the, of the heavens and the earth. Look at all the great mountains. Look at the beauty of this. The, soon to be burned. It's all going to be taken away. And in contrast, he says, we're looking according to his promise, waiting for new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Now, if you're, if you're like me, you have read New Heavens and New Earth. Like, okay, that's just a symbolic thing about heaven. Why did he say it that way? Why did he say New Heavens and New Earth? Why did God ever describe anything that was related to heaven? When did he ever describe relating anything concerning the promise? And he described it in our terms, hoping that we will draw some conclusions to help us understand how great it's going to be when, when we get there. So here, here's what I think of when I see that. Man, I think the heavens that we have right now are just phenomenal. Seen some of the pictures of the new, uh, what is it, James, uh, whatever, uh, thing. It's just, it's like, wow. I, I, I've gone through and just take, taken all kinds of slides of the, some of the Hubble telescope pictures and just unbelievable. 
billions of light years out into space and here's more and more and more and the glory of God just showing it. And then it's just the simplicity of complexity of our human body and just what we see around us. There's beauty everywhere. And God says, it's nothing. I'm going to make everything brand new. I was talking to somebody about that the other day. He said, I can't even think that way. I don't even know how to imagine well, I don't either. But when I see what he did here, how amazing is it going to be, this new creation that he is putting together? And not only that, a creation where only righteousness dwells. Now try to imagine that one. That one's harder to imagine than everything else. Only righteousness dwells. That, to me, the sweetest thought of our heavenly home. The sweetest thought is. There's no more sin. There's no more temptation. There's no more trial. There's no more any of those things. The thing that bugs us every day. And makes us complain. <laughs> it is all gone. It will be gone. And, and that, that's just so wonderful to consider. Look also at the words. Waiting for and hastening, waiting for these new heavens and new earth. Waiting and hastening. We can't wait. When we have the attitude that we just can't wait, where eyes are focused on that time, can't wait to enjoy that, can't wait to taste that, it truly makes this momentarily momentary moment as really a light affliction in comparison. It's totally nothing. We're looking for that. We're waiting for that so that we look past the things of this life, which is going to help us not complain. Help us to move to that next level. The present heavens and earth are vanity of vanities. There's no profit under the sun. As Solomon said, it's just, it comes. The word vanity is the idea of like your, your breath in a cold early morning, if you ever have that here, uh, your breath in a cold early morning and, and it, it appears briefly and poof, it's gone. There it is. Everything you enjoy. You ever tried to enjoy the same vacation twice because it was so much fun the first time? Was it ever the same the second time? No, no never was. Always something doesn't quite work out like it did the first time. One of the most frustrating things ever. I want to relive the same thing because it was so much fun and it never works. Because vanity of vanities. All is vanity, says the preacher. So why am I putting so much emphasis on now? Why am I putting so much emphasis on I'm afraid I'm running out of time and don't get to do some of the things I want to do? Why would I put emphasis on that when I have all the time there possibly could be sitting in front of me and looking forward to that time? Yeah, foolish Peter would think we would be if we walk around depressed because of our present suffering. I can't. Peter's probably going, are you guys kidding me? What do you think I've been writing here about? I've been trying to show you over and over again that this momentarily, momentary vision, this little while here, is absolutely nothing compared to the amount of time that you have before you. There is absolutely no reason to put that 
on us. And plus, how are we going to shine as lights in this world if when suffering comes our way or even suffering comes upon everyone around us, including us, how are we going to shine as lights if we're going around acting like this is the pits forever and again, without what Phil has talked about, that we're not rejoicing with greatest joy that there could be. How can we draw the world to Jesus if we're always acting like a victim of this world? This should be the best time. Suffering in the world around us should be the best time to teach the gospel. You have something to look forward to beyond this. Is life miserable for you right now? Is it just the pits about what we have to go through? Then think about this. You don't have to worry about the time that you're losing here because of the endless time that we have after this. In this you rejoice, Peter said, with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is a joy you cannot even express. In just the last part here, I want you to just take a quick journey with me. Most of this will be on the screen. Some pictures that I think help us think about the time, so to speak, that we have after this momentary end of times that we are living right now. In Matthew 24, in the parable of the talents, remember what Jesus said to the two talent, five talent men? Well done. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Do you ever think about the one thing that God wants for us is joy? The one thing he wants for us, not only now, but throughout eternity, that he has done everything for, that he has sacrificed himself for, is to bring us into his joy, into his home, which is a home filled with joy. That, that's what we have. I love more than anything, I think is one of my favorite verses. Psalm 16, verse 10 and 11. Listen to these words. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. That one's pretty familiar to us. Look at the rest of this. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I think pleasures are pretty cool. I think joy and all the fullness of it is just, that's just what we all want. And the Lord says, look, at my right hand, pleasures forevermore. Why in the world would I worry about what I'm, what I'm losing out on now? Or what maybe I can't have now? Why in the world would I worry about that? That's just so silly. If God wants to give us a gift, that's wonderful. Enjoy the gift. But that's what you're living for. You know it is a gift today and gone tomorrow. What we're looking for is these pleasures that he's offered forevermore. Look at Revelation chapter 7. Look at the words that he gives here in verse, in verse 13. As he, as he is asked, one of the elders says to, uh, says to John, uh, who are the, or or uh, uh, yeah says to John who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come 
And I said, sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. Serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Before the throne of God. Before the throne of God. Serving him day and night in his temple. I always thought it would be totally cool to be the night janitor at the White House in the Oval Office. Can you beat that? Oh, I get to clean the Oval Office. Wow. I get to, I get to polish up the desk. I'm not sitting in the chair. No, no, no. I wipe it clean. But to be in that Oval Office. Think of all the decisions. Here is the greatest Oval Office ever. Before the throne of God. Serving Him day and night in His temple. That's what we've lived for. What we work for. To be with Him all that time. Look at chapter 19, verse 7 through 9. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I generally am a little fearful of doing weddings. I never know how the in-laws are going to act. You know, it's just one of those things. But the best part, the best part of doing a wedding, standing right up here with the groom next to me. You're waiting. You're waiting. Bridesmaids come down. They all line up. And then she turns the corner. Takes my breath away every single time. Oh, man. Ready, prepared for her husband. It's just such a glorious moment. I always got to look over. I look over and the guy's just going, it doesn't get any better than this. Can you imagine? You're the bride. You're the bride. Your bridegroom is standing, waiting for you to turn the corner and make the entrance. He's provided for you the fine linen, the beauty. He's dressed you up. He's given you everything. And he's done this all, waiting and doing this from time beginning, before the beginning of time, waiting and preparing for his bride to turn that corner and come down that aisle. Look at how he really describes this. Look at 21 of Revelation, verse 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. The first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said to them, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Skip down to verse nine. This is the best. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. That's you. That's you. The angel said, come, I got to show you the bride. I got to show you she's gorgeous. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. That's us. Coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. Look at that. That's you. You've been prepared. All of the power and heavenly glory. You've been made like the most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal, coming down for your bridegroom. And he's waiting. And oh, he is so glorified. He's glorified because of what he has done in you. Preparing you for that moment. Everything from before the foundation of the world, before he even created you, is what he has done waiting for that moment in which you come down the aisle to be his bride. And then the final words of chapter 22, 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, Brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. They will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads. The night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Why would any of us worry about not having enough time we have an eternity as the bride of the Lamb. And therefore, Peter's words fit very well as good stewards of God's grace, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever indeed. To him belong glory. He has taken you and me, who were not worth anything, 
turned and recreated us into a rare, fine jewel waiting to be his bride. That's what we need. I hope just a few lessons we've done from 1 Peter renews your desire and strength for this particular letter and your hope for what we're waiting for. And the next time there's a trial, you're going to shrug your shoulders and go, whatever. Look what I've got in front of me. Love you all. We're going to sing a song. And if there's any way we can help anybody, please step forward. All together we stand up and we sing.